Welcome to Day 2, GeekWire's podcast about everything Amazon. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Amazon just posted its second quarter earnings, and there are some real surprises and some fascinating trends in these numbers that Amazon watchers are watching closely. And we've got two Amazon watchers here with us. First, our podcast collaborator, Jason Boyce, former top 200 third-party seller and founder of Avenue 7 Media and the co-author of The Amazon Jungle. And Jason, we met in person for the first time last week. It was so great, Todd. I had no idea how tall you were. You are a very (laughs) tall guy. You too. You can't tell in the little box. Sitting in these chairs behind these mics, you would have never known that the two of us were NBA prospects back in the day. Back in the day, yeah. (laughs) And we're pleased to be joined again by Andrea Lay, Vice President of Strategy and Insights at IdeoClick, an e-commerce technology and services firm based in Seattle. She was previously an Amazon general manager and retail category leader for nearly 10 years. Andrea, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to geek out on all things Amazon for the next hour. Absolutely. There was a lot of slowdown in Amazon's sales, its traditional online sales, whereas during the pandemic, Amazon was posting sales growth in online stores of 37 to 49%. They're down around 15% these days in this quarter, and it felt like it was kind of Amazon coming back down to earth. What were your key takeaways beyond that? Because I know there's a lot more to go into beyond that. Andrea, do you want to start us off? Yeah, there was a lot to unpack this quarter, and it was um, it was a pretty exciting release. I think you know the biggest things that stood out to me were probably the sales growth slowdown, and you know Jason and I were connecting a little bit before this, and without the impact of Prime Day, they would not have made their guidance. So it's pretty clear, you know, we were we were trying to figure out why they'd moved it up. We were speculating a lot of things, uh, but obviously that's that's one good reason <laughs> to make the numbers. Um, you know, we also had suspected some things around overstocks and certain categories and things like that. So the sales slowdown was pretty significant. I think other things that stood out to me were that the growth of the third-party seller services totally outpaced the 1P or vendor business, growing at almost 38%. And that's with all of the cube restrictions they have in place. So they're they're capacity constrained. And our clients that are sellers, and I'm sure it's Jason's as well, um, you know, have all been experiencing, you know, capacity limitations. So that growth was even with capacity limitations. It was throttled to some degree. They talked about capacity pretty much the whole earnings call. <laughs> you know, they've doubled the network size in the past two years and they're still capacity constrained. They have some labor constraints. They were a little cagier about those. You know, they talked about having to bring forward some wage increases for October, provide additional incentives for, you know, for hiring to try to get get people in. But the ad revenue growth was astonishing. <laughs> 80, 83% year over year. That was the thing. There was so much growth beyond what you would normally associate Amazon with, which is traditional e-commerce. And I want to mention third-party seller services. That is not third-party sales on Amazon. That is the money Amazon makes from third-party sellers. It's just the commission, yeah, and the fees and things. And I want to fully understand what you're saying about the capacity limitations. What was the word you used? Did you say- Cube, cube constraints. What There's, are those? They're- they're just putting different um, kind of demand-based constraints on sellers. You know, it used to be you could pretty much ship in whatever you wanted. And then if you had too much, you would just pay extra fees if it sat there too long. 
And now uh, they're getting stricter about what you can even send in and how much. And, and so putting some limitations on that. So a lot of our sellers are out of stock because they can't send in enough product. Jason, you work almost exclusively on the third-party side, people who are selling using Amazon as a platform. And so I'm sure you look at that increase in revenue from third-party seller fees with a different lens perhaps than an Amazon investor. Yeah, I, I got to tell you the the two billion dollar revenue miss. I was expecting a classic beat based on what I'm seeing from third party sellers growth. I, I haven't really seen any slowdown at all um, across you know our our sellers and private label brands, and so I was really shocked. And if you you know Andrea hit the nail on the head when back when we were talking about the Prime Day sales, we were asking ourselves, why would you have Prime Day in June, which is a month they've never had it in before. And then someone on the press call asked them, are you moving it in June to inflate your Q2 numbers? And they were almost... Uh, offended. They were, they were offended and they attacked you guys. <laughs> Clearly that was the case. So uh, no wonder they got so defensive. It's really shocking. The other shocking thing is their net income is up, up 50%. Yeah. So how That's do you the thing. That's the amazing thing. And you mentioned the miss, Jason. I want to make sure people know what you're talking about there. Wall Street was expecting Amazon to report revenue of $115 billion. By the way, I end up using revenue and net sales interchangeably yeah. with Amazon, um, it, which makes it super confusing because it's not confusing enough already for people who don't read right. financial statements. But at any rate, yeah. top line revenue they were expecting 115 and Amazon posted 113. That was the miss. But then they beat on profit. In other words, Wall Street was expecting profits of $12.22 per share and Amazon posted profits of $15.12 per share, which translated into $7.8 billion. So this is amazing. And I think that speaks to the shift we're talking about where they're making so much more of their money on higher margin businesses yes. like the seller services and that kind of thing. And advertising. Absolutely. Advertising growth was, it was like, 80, what is it, 88% year over year? Advertising sales growth or the other category, which is mostly advertising. And, it, it, you know, it's sort of just like, it's just a piece of magic for Amazon, that ad network, because they're able to kind of in some ways get the vendors to compensate for changes in consumer behavior. The more competitive the vendors get for the ads, because they're all struggling with lackluster year-over-year -year sales, sales growth as well, so they're really pushing hard on the advertising platform, the more competitive the advertising platform is, the more the ads cost. And so it drives up the prices of the ads. As a result, they grew it almost 90%. Yeah, Andrea, that, I mean, that, that's a crazy number. 7.9 billion, 83% year-over-year comp growth. But they added a billion dollars in ad revenue just from Q1. That's amazing. And it's 7% of their total revenue now. <laughs> so are you seeing in the online sales numbers, either by third-party resellers or by Amazon through first-party vendors, enough sales to justify that increased advertising spend? Because these are basically sellers spending more money on advertising to generate more sales. So is that kind of a potential bubble there? So yes and no. The lackluster growth in online sales is not entirely due to consumers being out and about more. And in the earnings call, they talked a lot about mobility and said that you know the pandemic, to some degree, really helped their business because people were at home and they were just shopping online and they were bored. But now people had more mobility. 
it is not just a return to physical stores and it is not just changes in consumer behavior. There are also some serious supply chain bottlenecks that are still occurring. So what we're tracking uh, within our business, we look across our 350 brands and we say, what are all the orders Amazon's placing, the order volume? How much of that are the vendors confirming? So how much do they have? And then how much of it is Amazon receiving? And so those are three numbers that we track. And they're normally tracking really close together. Like people mostly fill what Amazon orders. There are lots of exceptions, but you know, they try, <laughs> fill whatever you can because you know you're gonna miss the sales. And then Amazon receives about what it what it orders. And the gaps between these three numbers are really big right now. So Amazon's making a big order. The vendor can't fill a lot of it. The purchase order fill rates are lower than we've ever seen. And uh, and that's due to lots of COVID-related supply chain bottlenecks, everything from a shortage of shipping containers to- Ship shortage. Yeah. I mean, we just learned about, about aluminum film that goes on like medications. There's a shortage of that. So all of our health and personal care clients who have like medications that you have to sort of pop through the, <laughs> the film in the back, you can't get that at all right now. So there's manufacturing shortages, there are supply chain bottlenecks, but then once- even that inventory reaches Amazon, it can't get received because they have a labor shortage. And they didn't talk about it on the call, which really surprised me. Less is more, I guess, in terms of what they share, but there's a really big gap in what they're receiving. And so there were a lot of sales in the online stores segment that were left on the table. And it was not all changes in consumer behavior as we're seeing across our client base. And so Andrea, do you think that that 13% comp on the 1P vendor sales would have been higher if it wasn't for logistics issues? Yeah, because like what we're, well, these numbers, these metrics will make sense to you, Jason, but we're looking at our vendors' data, and on average, we're seeing like 30% lost by box. Wow. What does that mean? It's, um, so it's like when you're, when you don't have a, when you don't, you're not in stock. And so you lose the buy box to a third party seller that maybe oh. does have inventory or you don't have it all together because no one has it. And <laughs> there's, you know, so we're looking at some pretty high rates of lost buy box of replenishable out of stock, which is Amazon's metric for, it's an orderable product, but they don't have it in inventory. And those numbers are higher than we've ever seen as well. And then, you know, and then in addition to that, looking even further up the supply chain in terms of the purchase orders and what manufacturers can fill and, and how much they have to kind of short the order, basically. You could look at this a couple different ways. And I could see, Jason, where you might say this is Amazon's online sales business kind of imploding in some ways, but at the same time, you've got these other things and part of being in business is making sure you're diversified and, and they are, and they really are. The issue is that all these other things, advertising, prime seller services are all based on the core of a strong e-commerce business. So when you look at this, Jason, what are your key takeaways about Amazon's business overall? Well, it's a it's a beast, and it's incredibly impressive. Um, the diversification is there, and so many different verticals. I mean, we've talked about this on the show before. They don't just have. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, of course, but I, I feel like they've got not one monopoly, but several monopolies because they're <laughs> such a powerful business. You look at AWS. You look at their their power in e-commerce, in books, in voice. I mean, they're just they just own these markets, unlike anything we've ever seen under the roof of one company. You know, back to the advertising. It's so interesting. Uh, Joe from Marketplace Pulse reported uh, a couple of months ago that cost per click are up 50%, 5-0, not 1-5, 50% year over year. 
Prime Day saw a 40% increase in cost per click. And then every year in Prime Day, and I think we talked about this, right, Andrea? Cost per click go up and never quite come down to the level that they were before. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I was recently at the, at the Prosper show, Todd, and I had the great pleasure of being on a panel with James Kelly, former Amazon. Andrea, I don't know if you know James, but um, he was very involved in the marketplace in the early days. And James said something really interesting to me. He said, Amazon was built, Amazon Marketplace was built on a commission revenue model where they would take a take rate on every good sold. And I, I refer to those, Todd and Andrea, as the good old days. Now, with this ad revenue, they've got to be more profitable on ad revenue than any other vertical, including, including AWS, because they're just repurposing a lot of their own space. Now, granted, they're paying for, for, for inventory outside as well, outside of their, of their own properties. But James said something really interesting. Amazon has to be looking at this and they're seeing the cost structure of sellers that provide half a billion SKUs of selection on their mm -hmm. .com business and their costs are going up and they're having to raise their price because they're now paying for ads and they're giving a, you know, on average a 15% take rate. Something has to give. And the only way they're still maintaining prices lower than the rest of the internet is they do this thing called buy box suppression, where they will really mess with the seller's listing if they find the sellers selling the same product on Walmart for less. So they, yeah. so, the, so, so these sellers have have to raise their price. And I've, I've said this before. I think they're raising prices across the entire internet because of the selection. And so, in their business model, I mean, James was saying one of these has to give, and it. You know, he thinks it's got to be the seller rate. So maybe I don't want to get the sellers that are listening to our show too excited, but maybe we're reaching a point where Amazon looks at this and goes, man, we're making so much money on ad revenue. Maybe we can take that seller rate down for sellers to keep them happy and keep the prices uh, from inflating so much. It's part of a broader theme that we're starting to see, which is, you know, Amazon had for a long time viewed the seller business and the vendor business and the, the fees and on the seller side and the co-op, which is what the manufacturers and vendors pay Amazon as like tr trade funding and MDFs and things to be listed on the site as separate from ad revenue. And they were, there was kind of a wall in between these things and they were not combined to look at a total view of a seller or a vendor's profitability. But we're starting to see more and more that Amazon is making advertising a contractual obligation for a manufacturer. So this is new this year. We started seeing they're called co-op agreements. And so a vendor gets these for different things like, um, like maybe a damage allowance that they pay Amazon or like a freight allowance to pay for the goods to be shipped into Amazon or a marketing or MDF allowance to sort of for their detail pages to exist or whatever. For the longest time, the advertising spend of that manufacturer was not included in that picture. It was like, that's another team. That's another P&L. That's not part of the it's not part of our conversation with you brand a and now we're starting to see the advertising spend need to be a commitment from the vendor that is signed off on in the beginning of the year for a certain percentage of their sales for a certain amount of time and it's a contract it's looking as a contractual obliga obligation versus you know maybe a discretionary obligation like you know the manufacturer can decide throughout the year how much they want to spend on advertising no now they need to contractually commit and sign to a certain ad spend. 
And so I'm I'm seeing the same thing as you, Jason. It's like they're blur. They're starting to blur, <laughs> kind of the yeah. uh, the conversations a little bit, and it's it's less siloed than it used to be on the advertising side versus the vendor and seller side. Look, they've clearly got that advertising revenue needle stuck in their arm, and it is not coming out. They love <laughs> that ad revenue. <laughs> they, they they've got their fix, and they're just going to keep it coming. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and it, it, it's huge, right? Like this is 7% of their sales growing 100% year over year. I mean, AWS is 13% of their sales. Ad platform is half as big as AWS now. It's got to be a fraction of the cost of building up AWS infrastructure. Much higher margin business. Yeah. Really interesting. Okay. In all of this, we're dancing around it a little bit, but there's a fascinating milestone that Amazon is reaching in terms of the mix of its business. And I want to talk about that. When we come back, you're listening to Day 2 on GeekWire. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. I'm here with Jason Boyce and Andrea Lay. Jason is with Avenue 7 Media and Andrea is with IdealClick, and she's a former Amazon general manager. Andrea, right before we jumped on, I told you, I'm in the spreadsheet. I'm looking this up. And you said, wait, I've already done this part. So <laughs> this, we were both nerding out on our spreadsheets at the same time. Can you explain the milestone that you and I were were talking about right before we jumped on? Yes. So I'm always tracking how much of their business is consumer, like retail business, and how much of it is services. Because as we know, they started as a retailer and it was 100% retail um, with a little bit of, I consider seller commissions a service because that is, you know, it's they collect it no matter what. So if you look, this is the first quarter that services, which include uh, third-party seller services, subscription services, AWS, and other, which is mostly advertising, those are their segments, those services added up to 49.3% of their total business. And online and physical stores were 50.7%. So this is a (laughs) 50-50 quarter in terms of sales mix across services versus online and physical stores. I've been tracking this for a while. If you look at 2017, it was like 20, 30% services and the lion's share was online and physical stores. But even since last quarter, they gained two points in services and they lost uh, lost a couple points in online and physical stores. Why this matters <laughs> is because they're not a retailer anymore it would be hard to consider them a retailer if more than half of their sales are coming from services versus online and physical stores. And I think that's really interesting. And it also shows where the growth is coming from. The growth is not coming from the traditional, you know, retail model where manufacturers sell their goods to Amazon and Amazon stores them in their warehouses and resells them. It's coming from advertising, AWS, you know, different versions of third-party selling, whether it's FBA or Merchant Fulfilled. Now they're, you know, now they're making their AMZL, Amazon transportation arm. That's a service that other retailers can make use of. So I think there's, they've hit a really important milestone in terms of now they are a 50-50 business, (laughs) services and retail. And I think the services is growing faster and it's going to continue to be a larger percentage of their business. Todd, I've said it before and I'll say it again. The picks and shovel business is so much better than the digging for gold business. And Amazon (laughs) is all about the services, Andrea. Well, Oh, that's funny. That's it's a really good analogy or metaphor. I I keep going back to that question I was asking at the very beginning, and and that is, if you don't have that core 
thing that's driving it. I mean, it feels like if you don't have that core e-commerce engine just firing on all cylinders and being the growth engine of the company, what happens to the rest over time, long-term? They have to have a base of it, but it doesn't have to grow very fast. It doesn't need to be the growth engine. I mean, even it's a big base. So even if it just keeps growing a little bit, that's pretty good. And I and I really feel like this quarter for them, for online stores, the 15.8% year-over-year growth, I mean, that was hugely dampened by supply chain. It was not all, like I said before, it was not all consumer behavior. And I think what we're seeing in recent weeks is that the manufacturers are filling more of their purchase orders. So they're starting to experience some recovery, yet Amazon's receive rates continue to go down. So they're having like some kind of big labor problem. And I think when you look at someone in my company did this math, they were like, well, if Amazon's doubling their business and their warehouse footprint, like every three or four years, which they are, they will run out of available U.S. workers. Like there's just not enough people. Like if you just run that math out, <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> and so they're going to have to automate. I mean, I think that's going to be the next big investment for them and they're cash rich. So they should be able to figure out how to do it is like take all that ad budget and figure out how to automate all the warehouses. You're absolutely right. I mean, robots don't try to unionize and there's a <laughs> limitless supply Right, uh, and and it, I don't know what that means for our country, but I think um, I think you're absolutely right. And it's from a pure business perspective, from a pure investor perspective, it's the smartest move that they can make. You know, it's a little scary. Uh, it's a little dystopian if we think about it. But what I can't figure out is like, why didn't they talk about that at all on the call? Yeah, so I wanted to mention that. So they Brian Olsowski, the CFO, on the media call and the the call with investors, he did mention that they're having to boost wages and increase recruiting incentives to, to get people to come on board because of the competitive labor market. But what you're saying, Andrea, is you're seeing and hearing an actual shortage and a shortage that's impacting their ability to receive inventory and process. I'm seeing that they can't receive what's being sent to them. I don't know why, but I think it must be labor. I mean, maybe there's other things, but I can't think of what they would be. Well, it's, it's absolutely labor. I mean, they're not they're not giving away these signing incentives and bonuses because it's out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing it because they have to. And honestly, Todd, you know, you had a great episode on the day two podcast interviewing Karen Weiss from the New York times about Bezos planned it this way. He capped raises after year three in the warehouse and felt that warehouse workers that were there for the long term were inherently lazy. They got less productive over time and you were paying more. And so he has been churning. They've built this system that churns employees in and out in all these different markets. And now they're having to increase uh, cre increase wages. Andrea, it's, it's not just with Amazon. Everyone is having problems. Restaurant workers yeah. all, all over the country. There's a huge shortage of, of laborers in the, in the hotel business, et cetera. And so I think this is a, um, a theme that, that transcends Amazon. But you're absolutely right. They're having trouble. Yeah. It seems especially acute with them. Yeah, it seems especially cute with them. And I, I also would say that episode with Karen was real was amazing. So everyone should <laughs> listen to that. That was a really good that was a really good episode. And a credit to her reporting with her colleagues, and we'll link to the New York Times report uh, on Amazon's disposable workforce. Essentially, is what it was about. Um, so. Yeah, she took like a really interesting. It was a, I felt like it was a very balanced approach in the in the article and in the discussion with you guys too, which was. Um, you know, there's a there's a labor philosophy that they're operating with. And 
she kind of t- got into some of the details about like how overwhelmed they got because they have a labor philosophy that they're adhering to. But more importantly, what I learned from that podcast is how overwhelmed Amazon was at becoming such a large employer. I mean, their systems weren't prepared for it. They were sending out return from leave notices to people who didn't weren't meant to be getting them. I mean, they just they could not get their systems kind of to process that quantity of of labor like they were unprepared for it and i thought that was really interesting i should note amazon was back in growth mode in this quarter they had actually shed employees overall on a net basis in the first quarter which used to be relatively common at least they were flat coming out of the holiday season because they'd staffed up so much but then they shed them in the first quarter now here in the second quarter they added 64,000 employees so they're now at 1.335 million employees worldwide. How many were there when you were there, Andrea? I was employee 4,012. <laughs> it sounds like when something left, out of a sci-fi movie. They just cycled through 4,000 employees yesterday. <laughs> when I left, I was in the 99.8th percentile. So like 99.8% of the company had started after me. There's a lot, lot more people there then, but... And now we know your ATM pin, 4012. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, going back to the revenue miss, the $2 billion revenue miss, I was doing some napkin math and trying to figure out how much bigger that miss would have been if Prime Day wouldn't have been in June. Huh. And, I, you know, it, it's tough because the, the GMV number – that was shared with Digital 360 was, uh, you know, 10 to $11 billion. So you try to back out the GMV portion from the third party sellers. Typically on a prime day, 65% of the revenue is going to Amazon owned products, the one piece side and 35 to third party sellers, which is kind of an inverse of what it normally is. But prime day promotions for Amazon products is always very good. And then you, um, you know, you sort of subtract out what the average daily sale would be. I think that $2 billion miss would have probably been six to $7 billion miss. So just again, further evidence, Andrea, that you were right, that this moving prime day into June is not any other reason other than to pad some really painful numbers. It couldn't just be well, coincidence. <laughs> How's that for a naive question? At first, I thought they were overstocked because we were just looking at the client. We were looking at the receive rates, or we were looking at the um, we were looking at the inventory that was getting received. And now I'm thinking it was well. They might have some select overstocks. I mean, I'm sure their ordering systems went bonkers at trying to comp the pandemic. I bet they ordered way too many groceries. And then they probably didn't, you know, maybe ordered. Think about all the stuff that was one-time purchases. That was another thing Brian Osofsky said on the call. He was like, you know, you outfit your home office. You don't need to do that every year. Like that's a not that's a one-time purchase. But okay, so some more numbers, and we can go back later and figure out what their sales would have been. But across our client base, we're seeing that the the purchase order. Um, like the amount that the vendor's sending as a percentage of the total order, it's starting to recover and it's like around 75% right now. So they're shipping in 75% of what Amazon's ordering. So there's already a gap there of 25% that our clients can't ship that is lost sales. Amazon wanted it, they couldn't get it. And then of that, Amazon's only receiving about 60% of the order. So there's a super long time before they get it on the shelf, on the digital shelf, <laughs> and it's orderable. So, I mean, those are some serious headwinds on that 15% growth number. And it would have been a lot higher, I think, if 
like everything was functioning properly. Like if manufacturers had inventory and like, I, I guess my point is the demand's still there. Like people are still trying to order stuff. <laughs> Shelves We're are still empty. Shelves yeah. are still empty. Yeah. 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 You know, another interesting one, free cash flow decreased, decreased massively. $19 billion drop uh, in, uh, in, in free cash flow. And I think they, you know, Olsovsky talked about that on the analyst call pretty well, talking about how much more debt they've added, how much more plant property and equipment they've added. I mean, it's pretty, it's a pretty remarkable story about how they basically double capacity in 18 months, but that doesn't come cheap. No, he said, okay, his, he said they, the CapEx, their CapEx increased 70% in the last year. That's a so, big number. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the average company cannot increase their CapEx 70% in such a short period of time. Unless you have a really big ad platform. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so essentially they're taking money that would go into the bank cash flow and they are applying it to capital expenditures. In other words, they're going out and building new warehouses and new capacity and, and, and hoping that they can hire the workers to staff those places to fulfill the orders. Is that the gist? And trucks. It's not just warehousing, it's it's delivery too. So the CapEx increase of 70% year over year. I mean, that's in, that's insane. And then he said that in 2021, most of their spend is planned for the second half of the year because that's when they open all their fulfillment centers. Is they the hardest part within Amazon's you know, business model, at least on the consumer side, is the timing of opening of fulfillment centers to the peak of demand because you don't want them online all year. You know, they're always growing into their fulfillment centers, but it's it's best if they're adding them just as they need them, because otherwise you have this huge CapEx outlay and no re revenue that to off, you know, to offset that. And so they usually open them all. The balance is like you want to open them early enough that you can get the workers trained and you want to get the inventory in there. But, you know, you don't want to open them too early because then they just sit there empty. Wow. So the most of their openings are still planned for later this year, they said. Wow. Todd, some other napkin math that I did as I was listening to that analyst call was uh, sort of an, a very rough estimate of GMV uh, for, for third-party sellers. Gross merchandise value. So that the total uh, value of goods sold by third-party sellers on Amazon's platform. And, and GMV number, to, uh, remember, I'm uh, one of the founding members of the Church of GMV. And, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons why I think GMV is so important is because it communicates just how much market power and how much gross sales are going through the Amazon platform. And it's one of the reasons why so many Amazon sellers like abused stepchilds keep coming back to Amazon to sell more because they have so many customers and such a huge massive ability to turn sales. Should we really quickly review what it is they do report and why that is not a measure of their total sales? Great idea, Andrea. So we talked about on the earnings call, they mentioned 56% of units sold on amazon.com worldwide came from third-party sellers. And what's a third-party seller? One-party sellers, Andrea, you know a lot of these folks, real vendors who are selling, a, a, giving a wholesale price to sell to the retailer, Amazon, and they're marking it up. You know, that's the 1P relationship. But the sales that they report is only the commission on those sales. So when you look yeah, at their earnings, the third-party um, sales is only the commission and fees they collect. It's not the total value of all the merchandise sold. So it, it makes it look like it's a lot smaller 
than it is. That's right. I have as a third party seller, if I sell $100 of goods on the amazon.com platform, Amazon's reporting $15 on average of that sale, not the 100. And so in order to, you know, that that third party services revenue of about 25 billion, you can imagine, you know, it includes fees collected from FBA, which should not be marked up. So if you I, I just made a random estimate here, say 66%, say two thirds of that third-party services revenue of 25 billion is a take rate, seller fee, that 15%, that $15 seller fee that they're reporting. And if you take that and you, and you mark up and you divide by that 15% seller fee, that GMV for the quarter is over $100 billion. It's actually 110 billion if you follow that math. Hmm. Shopify platform just actually had an amazing record quarter themselves. Their gross merchandise value number uh, was up 40%. I, it looks like they're going to hit 180 billion on every Shopify store, gross merchandise value for the year, 180 to 200 billion. Amazon just did 110 billion in a quarter. Hmm. And so that's a pretty powerful number. Just in the third party seller platform. Just in the third party seller platform. That's right. We didn't <laughs> even include the 1P revenue, which is in the $50, $50 billion range. That's right. Okay. Here is my question for both of you. Amazon has a new CEO, Andy Jassy. If you were advising him, I wouldn't, you know, presume to think that he would listen to any of us or take advice from any of us necessarily, <laughs> but clearly, you know, all three of us pay pretty close attention to this business. You two much more than I, what would you do? Is this a problem for Amazon? These trends that we're talking about, or is this a sign of a strong business? Just fold up the 10, Andy, just fold it up. You got nothing here. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. That's my advice. I, it's, it's interesting because both of you obviously look at it from the perspective of, of sellers of, and from vendors in some cases. And, and clearly there's some interesting trends from that perspective that may not all be that great, especially when you look at these inventory problems and supply chain problems. But from an Amazon perspective, is there something to fix here? I don't presume that Andy would listen to me, but I, think, <laughs> I do think that they are shedding customers. And here's why. I mean, the whole, whatever happened to same day delivery, like that we haven't talked about that in like two years, right? I mean, that was all the headlines pre-pandemic. And they have to figure out how to continue to deliver for the demand that's there. That feels pretty important for the retail business. If they don't have the retail business, they don't have the ad platform. And, and what we're hearing from our clients who sell, we work with clients selling across multiple platforms, not just Amazon, is for many of them in, in, very, in very large categories, the category competitor to Amazon is bigger. So, you know, looking at like Chewy or Ulta and Sephora or different players in, in grocery and whatever it is, whatever category, furniture is Wayfair, like those players are, you know, in a lot of cases, um, getting close to the size of Amazon for those manufacturers and in some cases bigger, representing more business than Amazon represents for them. And I think it's because the last couple of years, people have had to try out new things. Like you couldn't always get the product on Amazon or and or maybe it had a really long lead time, which I think we saw, especially during Prime Day. If you tried to shop for anything that wasn't on deal, it was like seven to 10 days before it was going to show up at your house. So they got to fix this. They're a supply chain company and they have to do a good job on the supply chain. 
I, I think that this is solvable and I think it will be fixed. And Amazon of all companies has enough dry powder in order to solve it. And I think, you know, it may take some time. It may take six to nine months, maybe even a, a year to get things back to normal. This is really COVID driven on so many different levels, both uh, from a labor perspective, I think is even COVID has driven it. Um, and, and just sort of the backlog of everything, including production and raw materials and like, you know, the tinfoil things that you talked about, <laughs> Andrea, I don't know what's going to happen to my Sudafed now. I'm kind of concerned <laughs> about the lack of tinfoil worldwide, but, um, but you know, what I, what I think is a bigger problem. I, I, I think you're right. I think here's a, here's a good anecdote. So I went to the prosper show a couple of weeks ago. It's the largest seller for Amazon sellers. And I've been, I went to the show six years in a row. Last year was virtual, but I went to the very first one. I went to the one last year and there was a very noticeable tone difference from sellers this year than any other year I've ever gone. Most years, and I talked to scores and scores of sellers, most of them in years past are like, how can I do more on Amazon? How can I sell more on Amazon? Now they're like, how can I get off of Amazon? <laughs> because Amazon is a nightmare. I can't stock my inventory. They're taking more and more fees. I can't make any money. How do I get on Shopify? How do I get on Walmart? How do I do? And, and you know, I'm, I'm on the advisory board and we're talking about creating additional content for next year's show that includes how to do those things at the Amazon show, right? And the second thing is Amazon clearly execution-wise hit it out of the park under incredibly difficult circumstances for, for COVID. However, on the PR side, I feel like there's this growing chorus and I talk to shoppers all the time because I want to know where they're searching for products, where they're buying products. And the more young people I talk to, the more they say, I'm, I refuse to buy anything from Amazon. Now, look, it's a small chorus, but it's growing. And so that is Andy Jassy's biggest concern. And, you know, all of the negative press where it's like death by 10,000 cuts, the unions, the workers, the poor drivers urinating in a water bottle, um, you know, the product safety issues, the China story, um, on and on and on, you know, Jeff Bezos not paying any taxes and then flipping a bird to the world while he goes up in the phallic symbol into outer space and coming back down. Right. I mean, come on. Those are concerns that Andy Jassy has to figure out. He has to figure this out because eventually the shoppers will leave if they don't do a better job than what they've done in the last couple of years. I mean, if you were Jeff, wouldn't this be when you would step down? Like, this is not fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, not the fun phase. The fun phase <laughs> is building everything and everyone's all excited and like the only direction is up and it's like yeah. every graph looks like a hockey stick and you get to invent and make customers add convenience to their lives and all these things. And now yeah. I think they've entered the phase of like the less fun stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is definitely not fun for him anymore. He's like, I'm out. Good luck, Andy. <laughs> I'm interested to see what happens next with their workforce because, I mean, in addition to the warehouse labor, you know, I just read an article in Fast Company this morning that's calling this era the great resignation. And it's not obviously specific to Amazon. It's in general that a lot of people are coming out of the pandemic and they're like wanting to quit their jobs. And yeah. And, you know, I, I got to, you're right on, Andrea. I remember on the analyst call, there was a, a discussion about return to office. And yeah. how many Amazon employees do you know that have been doing a great job working from home and are happy as can be rather than being shoulder to shoulder in one of those, you know, 44 high rise buildings in, in, in Seattle or elsewhere. And they're all having to go back to work and they're asking themselves, do I really want to do that? I can do yeah, this work from home. Totally, totally agree, Jason. I mean, we're in Seattle and we've 
lot we've we're doing like a you can be a hundred percent remote employee to try to compete with that because there are a lot of tech companies here. It's hard to hire talent here, and most of them are making everyone go back to the office in the fall. But um, you know, to compete with that, you have to offer something that's different than that. And they've flat out said, we are sticking with our story. We're a re- 100% return to office in September. And I, I saw a collective eye roll uh, with around 50,000 Amazon employees. I just sort of imagined that. But I, you know, they're just like, really? Really? We have to go back to the desk, the door desk again and you know, <laughs> smell my neighbor and not being able to hear who I'm talking on the phone because three other people are talking at the same time. Come on. Open, open office just doesn't work. Well, and the dogs. Me, Forget about the dogs. And the dogs, right? Well, I love the dogs. I think the workers love the dogs. Loud. But... There are a lot of them. Yeah, right. You're right. Yeah, I got to say, in their defense, every Amazonian I've ever been around has smelled great. <laughs> <laughs> you clearly haven't been in the engineering room. Okay, all right. <laughs> I, I do want to say, here's the ultimate advantage that Andy Jassy has in all of this. $7.8 billion. I mean, it would be one thing if he was facing these challenges without the advantage of that bottom line, but that's multiple levers in there that he can pull. Wages, lower fees, benefits. I mean, he's got a lot to play with there. And of course, that then runs afoul potentially of investors. And so you've got a bunch of different constituencies. I need to print out my copy of the leadership principles and refer to it right now to be able to navigate this situation. <laughs> you know, like what is the priority? So ultimately it's customers. That's that's what Amazon says, right? Customer obsessed. You're absolutely right, Todd. But look, there there was also some really positive news that they shared in the in the guidance. Well, I shouldn't say the guidance for Q3, the next three quarters is really mid-teens year-over-year growth rate. Uh, that's not very big for Amazon, but I think that they are um, setting expectations low for the next three quarters so they don't have another miss. I agree, Jason. They're probably hedging. Right. But there there were some really great stories. Amazon Future Engineer Program. Uh, being they're, they're putting a lot of money behind this program in underserved communities. You know, It's great stuff for computer science and robotics engineers. Emphasis on robotics engineers. We talked about that earlier in the show. They've hired 25,000 veterans and military spouses, an issue near and dear to my heart, Uh, you know, as as an ex-Marine. They've added mental health benefits. There's a joke there somewhere, Todd, that you need it in order to survive uh, being an employee. And and then, you know, they got this Black Business Accelerator program that they've funded, which is awesome. uh, Because one thing that I noticed about walking around the Prosper Show is there was not enough diversity. Um, I'm happy to see there are many more women than there ever were before, but we need more diversity in the seller community and in this in this game called Amazon. So there's there's definitely a lot of good stuff that they reported as well. But boy, in the court of public opinion, they have got a couple of black eyes in the last year. Well, they're and they're also doing a lot of things around the workforce, which I think is really interesting. You know, they've got this partnership with the National Safety Council. So this is all about like protecting people's sort of physical um, well-being in the workforce. They're like, well, we can invent. Like, why don't we invent? We can set the standards for some of this stuff. So I thought that was really cool. And then they have this whole returnship program. So they've got all these people that left jobs. And it's not just Amazon. It's, you know, everyone. There's lots of open jobs everywhere right now um, due to COVID or maybe just this isn't a time that they can be working or whatever. And so they're trying to work on, you know, getting people back, which I think is interesting. There's a lot of focus on returnship right now in general, not not just Amazon, but outside of it. But we can't 
it's it's really hard to focus on that until there's an understanding of what's happening with schools. Like our our kids returning <laughs> because right. you can't you can't bring back all the caregivers if the kids aren't going to school. But it's so far it looks like they are. Um, yeah, to your point, they had some mental health benefits, and so I, I I'm excited about that. I feel like they have an opportunity to really be best in class there. Like they're good at inventing things. They're good at innovating. They're good at you know delivering um, like disrupting kind of different ways of doing things. So I think that's exciting. I hope they pull all that off. And I do want to point folks, there was an interview that Amazon posted with Andy Jassy uh, and Alicia Bowler Davis, one of Amazon's senior executives. And it would have been much better if he had gone through a round of actual media interviews with hard hitting questions. It's this large portion of this is public relations in this video, but it is worth watching or at least checking out the story that I posted for highlights. You really get a sense for the person that he is. And for myself, having watched Andy Jassy lead Amazon Web Services and really geek out on the inner workings of the cloud on stage, to hear him more as a human being and a leader in this video, I got a better sense for why he was chosen as CEO. You're absolutely right. He's a, he's a good human being. Uh, his heart's in the right place. He's brilliant. He's, he's incredibly accomplished. How did you stay awake through that interview? I fell asleep halfway through when he started to go off on his tennis career. I mean, that's well, amazing. I, 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 well, I didn't caffeinate enough, I think, before I watched that interview. So I have, I have some tricks for... <laughs> I mean, I, can you share them with me offline? Well, please? you know, I, I, honestly, folks out there probably, I there's this great service where you can put in a YouTube video and it returns an automated transcript, so you can go, you can see what's not relevant and what's not, but you're still reading the whole thing. Brilliant. Oh, that's great. Brilliant, yeah, right? It's, it's called Temi. That is, that's one version of of this. They specifically right. do it with YouTube. I do feel like, I mean, we are we have been highly critical of Amazon as we should be. That's this is our job, right? To to really understand the inner workings and help vendor and seller communities figure this out, you know, but I think they, they've gotten a lot of crit criticism in the last year. And it's worth noting, like they were working on a lot of things behind the scenes that we didn't see as it relates to provide, like setting up separate websites to provide PPE equipment to the government. And like, they had a lot of stuff going on <laughs> that was not their consumer business. And, um, you know, and they did deliver a lot of results there. And it's probably not stuff that they can really talk a lot about but they did definitely provide an essential service to the United States. And that's pretty important. I mean, I heard I heard offhand that they had repurposed like half of the US Hardlines team to, to just go work on that project for a while. So they took people off of their core business and put them on something for greater good. I'm surprised they didn't talk more about it in the earnings. Like that seemed weird, but I don't know. Maybe that's not something that they can talk about. They should. Well, this is great. I feel like I understand this earnings report and this company better than I did an hour ago. And I covered the earnings. So I am very grateful to both of you, Andrea and Jason. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining us. Well, thank you, Todd. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening today to GeekWire's podcast about everything Amazon. You can find more episodes and content at geekwire.com slash day two. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll be back soon with a new episode of day two.